Well, good morning. We are glad to have you here. Let's pray together before we look into God's Word. Father, we thank you that you are a way maker, a miracle worker, a light in the darkness. We thank you, Father, that when we trust in you, you provide us everything we need to do exactly what you're calling us to do. So I'm here today may uh, be going through a challenging time, and I pray, Father, that you would remind them of those truths that we have sung, that you are the one working in their heart, even when we don't feel it, even when we can't see it, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. And for those going through great times, Father, remind us that uh, those are blessings from you, and help us be those who, who demonstrate gratitude and, and thanksgiving in, in, in every area of our life. We thank you that you are that way maker and you've made the way to yourself through Jesus. Father, we come together and we want to sing together as we've done. We want to worship you. We want to interact together. Before we look at your word, Lord, we want to pray together in one voice the way Jesus, your son, our savior, taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We believe that there are five questions that echo in the heart of every person. And at some time in our life, we have to answer these questions. We looked at these last week. Let me give you a review today. They are in your programs if you want to follow along your sermon notes. First question is this, where did I come from? And that question deals with origin. It deals with the fact of, was I created by God? Am I made in an image of God? Or did I just evolve? And that changes the way we think, right? Second question, who am I? That's identity. Our identity. Who are we at our core? When everything else is stripped away, what is our identity? Third question is, why am I here? That's my meaning or purpose. God put me on this earth for a specific reason. Why is that? Four, how should I live? That's morality. What's right and wrong, and where do I go to determine what's right and wrong? And then number five, where am I going? That's my destiny. When this life is over, what, hap- what happens the nanosecond after you die? Now, those five questions determine your worldview, the lens through which you see the world, the lens through which you live. And a worldview can be a lot of different things. You could be a naturalist. You could hold to naturalism. And naturalism basically is, I am God. There is no God. I am God. Secularism is that played out. Naturalism applied. Naturalism, uh, secularism, there is no God. 
Therefore, I'm going to worship myself as God. I only go around one time in life. There's nothing after this. So I'm going to grab for all the gusto I can get. I'm going to do things my way, in my time, spend my resources the way I want to do it. I get this one shot, these few years. That's secularism. Postmodernism says, you are not the boss of me. I am. I'm going to do things my way, and I am going to determine what's right. I'm going to determine what's wrong. In fact, I may even let the culture kind of determine that, because what was right 100 years ago may not be right today, and what's right today might not be right 100 years ago. You're not the boss of me. When when our kids were little, uh, I remember being in the car one time, and uh, our 12-year-old uh, daughter, oldest daughter now, Brittany, she was in the front seat, and, and Laura, about eight years old, she was in the, she was in the back seat. And uh, I asked Brittany that question, as parents, we always ask, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you thinking about? What do you want to do when you, when you grow up? What do you, want to, what do you want to be? And she said, I think I want to be a veterinarian. Uh, she always uh, thought she wanted to be a veterinarian, and we were talking about that, and and uh, going through the, all the aspects of being a vet, veterinarian. And Lars in the back, and sh- we weren't talking to her. And, and uh, she wasn't involved in the conversation. But all of a sudden, she popped up and said, hey, you know what I want to be? I said, no, Lars, what do you want to be? She said, I want to be the boss of a veterinarian. <laughs> the postmodern view, right? Coming from the back seat. I am in charge. I want to do things my way. Pantheism is, may the force be with you. Uh, We are all God. God is all and in all, and we are all God, and there's this force around us, and we kind of live in this this deistic uh, uh, shield. Pluralism, all roads lead to God. Everything gets to God. Just be sincere in your beliefs. New spirituality says, just believe in something. We hear this all the time. It doesn't matter what you believe in, just believe in something. And then my favorite is moralistic, therapeutic deism. God just wants me to be happy. I just want to be happy and kind to other people. Now, this is the best branded worldview out there. This worldview has its own emoji, right? Right there. That's just a normal day. On a good day, it even has another emoji. Right there. It even has a song that goes with it. Right? Okay, that's enough of that song. And it even has a cookie that goes with it. That didn't work last night either. I don't know if I'm going to do that at 10.45. It's just too much work for the, for the lack of response, right? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That, by the way, is a very popular worldview. I get this, have this little app that uh, the, the best-selling books uh, come out, and they kind of review the best-selling books and give a summary. So when I was mowing grass the other day, I was listening to a podcast of, of, of the book, and it was how to be happy. I thought this will be interesting. Not a Christian book. And there was some good stuff in it. You know, don't let your circumstances control you. Don't let other people control you. But then when they got to the punchline, just look within yourself. Just look within yourself and find that true happiness. 
Now, we talk about these worldviews today, but these are not new. These have been around since the beginning of time. And in the early church, they were very prevalent. The early church had these same worldviews going on. In the Roman world, there were bits and pieces of all these worldviews, pleasure-seeking, materialism, secularism, naturalism, polytheism. And then the church is right in the middle of that. We kind of think today we're the only group that's ever had to fight culture, right? Wrong. But here's the kicker. Why did the early church grow? In the midst of a Roman culture? And why are we declining today? In the midst of the same culture, we just put different names to it. Why is that? Well, could it be? Could it be that in the Roman world, the Christian was different? Christian was unique. A Christian had this worldview. The Christian worldview is always Christocentric. It always is centered on Jesus. And when we're centered on Jesus, when we're focused on Him, then we don't live like everybody else. And it's just interesting, isn't it? Even during the persecutions, even during those difficult times in the Roman Empire, the Christian church grew like crazy, and we're declining today. Could it be that we look more like the culture than really our worldview that we say we believe in? Take your Bibles and open them to the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So, when you say the Christian worldview is Christocentric, right, you can read that in any book and you can agree with it or not agree with it. But today, in our passage in chapter 2, Paul's going to tell us why our worldview is Christocentric. Why? And then he's going to tell us how to live out the Christian worldview. So the Christian worldview is our what, right? He's going to tell us our why. And then he's going to tell us our how. We're going to work our way through this chapter. Now, if you look at chapter 2, it's an inductive chapter. That means that this section of Scripture, Paul builds and builds and builds and builds, and then he, boom, makes his point at the end. So let's start at the end. Chapter 2, verse 16. In chapter 2, verse 16, here is the main point of what Paul is trying to say, the why of our Christian worldview. And Paul says this, but we, talking about believers, but we have the mind of Christ. Believers have the mind of Christ. Our worldview is Christocentric. The why is because we have the mind of Christ. Will you say that with me? But, it's not even on the screen, but you can remember, ready? But we have the mind of Christ. That is not some inspirational slogan. That is not some motivational thing that we put on our mirror every day to see it as we, as we get up and get ready for work, get ready for school. We as believers, Paul is saying, here's why we have a Christocentric worldview. We have the mind of Christ. 
The, the word mind is the Greek word nous, and it means way of thinking, disposition, attitude. So when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, he is saying as believers, we have Christ's way of thinking. It is in us. It is now, because of Jesus, hardwired in us. We have Christ's way of thinking. We have Christ's character. We have Christ's attitude. Our worldview is Christocentric because we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you're like me and you read that, you think, okay, I see it. I know it's true, but I have trouble really living it out. Anybody else? The mind of Christ, the attitude of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the thinking of Jesus. I have struggling struggles living that out. So Paul, in this chapter, is going to say, that's who you are. That's what you have. That's why your worldview is Christocentric. But let me tell you how to live it out. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Remember, Paul went to Corinth. He was there for 18 months. Paul was a highly, highly trained lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law. He could have blown them away with his terminology. He could have blown them away with his speech. He was a brilliant man. But Paul says, I chose not to impress you with who I am or my words, lofty speech or wisdom. That's what the Greek philosophers of your day do. That's the culture of your day. I am not going to become part of the culture of your day. I'm not going to impress you with who I am. Rather, I want to impress you with who Jesus is because our worldview is Christocentric. And you believers, Corinthians, even though you got some issues going on, you have the mind of Christ. Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the, that, that is the message of the Bible. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus, the man, fully human. Christ, the Messiah, fully God, and him crucified. That's why he came. When you see that word crucified, think of the whole package, right? He came, he taught, he lived, he died, and he rose again from the dead. And Paul said, that's the only message I came to tell you about. I didn't come to impress you with, with me. I didn't come to impress you with language. I didn't come to impress you with some system of theology. I came to impress on you one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, in verse 3, Paul gets pretty vulnerable. He says, not only did I come with you, with, I, I, not with lofty language or wisdom, but when I was with you, look at verse 3, I was in weakness. I, I was sick. In, in 2 Corinthians, he'll tell us that he had a thorn in the flesh that really slowed him down and um, prayed three times to get rid of it. God never 
took it from him. In fact, God said, my strength, God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And, and, and it could have been, a, we don't know what it was. It could have, some people think it was an eye uh, issue. But Paul says, I was there for 18 months and I was physically ill the time I was there. I was with you in fear and much trembling. We don't know why, but when Paul was in Corinth, he, there, he was fearful for these 18 months. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Now, why would God have to tell someone not to be afraid? Because they're afraid, right? Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. See, Paul came to say, I want to tell you about Jesus. It's the only reason I'm here. It's not to impress you with words. There's an old story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's an old story that you use. I used to, when, I, when we used to look at an illustration uh, for sermon illustrations, the book was always in, it was always in the book. And it was about, a, it was about uh, the 1800s uh, when there was no TV, there was no radio, there was no internet, there were no iPhones. And the entertainment of the day were um, uh, orators who would go into a city and they would fill out auditoriums. They would give uh, speeches. Uh, they would read poems. Uh, they would read literature. They'd do all these things. And the story is one guy goes into this town and, and, and he packs it out. And he uh, go, go, does this, all this poetry and literature and the people are just amazed by him. And then he says, hey, anyone have any, anyone have any uh, requests, anything I can do? And, and so they say, yeah, which this, this older man, uh, the story goes, the older man, tattered, kind of tattered clothes. He said, would you do the, the 23rd Psalm? And so the guy said, yeah, I'll do it, but one condition, I'll do it if you'll do it after me. And the guy said, that's kind of different, but okay. And so the guy, the orator, starts doing the 23rd Psalm, and, and man, he's like, he's like, the words are just rolling off of his lips, and it's just beautiful the way he's doing it. And, and when he's done, he gets, this, he gets this ovation, this loud ovation of doing the 23rd Psalm. And then this older guy comes up, clothes worn out, and he goes through the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Shall not want. And after he was finished, no ovation, but a few tears in the audience. And the speaker went up by him and said, just as I thought, I know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. Do you know the author of the Bible or just the arguments of the Bible? Paul says, I'm not here to impress you with my speech, my wisdom. I'm here to impress you with one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at verses four and five. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but here's, here's the kicker. They were in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So we could say it this way. My words were a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You want to convince, you want to show someone what Christianity is about? You don't need to give them a book 
on apologetics. Although that's not a bad start, and God can use that. But you really want to show them what Christianity is about? You show them a transformed life by the Spirit's power. That's what Paul says. I was there to show you. When I was there for 18 months, my purpose was to show you Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I could only do that. Here's the how. I can only do that through the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man. I'm not convincing you as a person. You didn't trust in Christ because I, I was a persuader. You trusted in Christ by the power of God. Not your faith rests in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. In verse 6, Paul begins to kind of drill down on this. The first observation we would make then is this. The Christian life is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So we said, what's the, the what, right? We have a Christocentric Christian worldview. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. How? How do we pull that off? Only by the Spirit's power. The Spirit who lives in us. The Christian life is a demonstration of the Christian's power. Here's a second observation I'd make in this passage. The Spirit is the only one who can open our eyes to understand the work of Jesus. Look at, verses, look at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Paul's saying we're going to impart wisdom, but it's a spiritual wisdom. It's not the human natural wisdom that those Greek philosophers and those debaters and those experts in the Old Testament law, it's not their wisdom. We are departing to you, we are imparting to you a wisdom that is from God. Their wisdom, Paul says at the end of verse 6, it's doomed to pass away. It's relative, right? What's wise now is not going to be so wise 100 years from now, according to the culture. But Paul says, I want to give you a wisdom. I want to give you a belief system that stands the test of time. Look at verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is Paul talking about? He's not talking about a Christian secret handshake. He's not talking about the Gnostics who said there's got to be some deeper intellectual stuff here. When Paul says and it's secret and hidden wisdom, he's simply talking about the gospel. He says in Colossians, he says it this way, it was a mystery, it was hidden for generations, but now it's revealed to the saints. And here's what Paul says. It's the spirit that enables us to live out the mind of Christ. It's the Spirit working in us. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood the gospel. They still don't. For if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, this is Isaiah 64 he's quoting from, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart a man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
The Spirit enables us to live out the mind of Christ. The Spirit is the one who opens the eyes. Sometimes we think, why wouldn't anyone, why wouldn't everyone want to know that when they die, they can go to heaven and be with God forever? Why wouldn't they get that? Why wouldn't everyone, when they lose a loved one, want to know the strength and power that comes when God helps us and strengthens us and gives us? Why wouldn't they want to know that? Because the natural man doesn't see the things that the spiritual person sees because the Spirit has not opened up their eyes to see them. Look at verse 11. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Who knows what you're thinking except you? I would love to know what you're thinking. But who knows what you're thinking except you? Who knows what I'm thinking except me? Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, right? So who knows what you're thinking except you, your spirit inside of you? Who knows what God is thinking except who? His spirit. But then Paul says in verse 12, that's the spirit we have within us. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We can understand the mind of God, the mind of Christ. How? Because the Spirit of God lives within us, and we impart this in words, verse 13, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now just think practically what that means. Just think about this. This love letter from God is inspired by God, right? The Spirit of God moved along men to, and women to write this, to write scripture, right? Moved them, inspired them to write these words down. The Spirit did that. So the same Spirit that wrote this book through people is the same Spirit who lives within us. So when we open as believers, when we open the Bible, we, we, we've just entered a spiritual realm, God's Word, this is not just a book, God's Word, written by His Spirit, Spirit living in us, the Spirit explains to us, opens our eyes to see what God has for us. Does that mean we don't study? No. Does that mean we don't meditate on Scripture? No. But it means the Spirit will open our eyes to understand things in Scripture that the natural man will not be able to see. How many times have you been reading the Bible and you've read this passage a bunch of times and you read it and you think, I don't think that was in there the last time. I think that is a new addition. I don't remember ever reading that before. Why is that? Because on that day, with what you were going through, challenges in your life, the Spirit said, you got to see this today. This is what you need today. 
and he opens our eyes to see things we would never be able to see on our own. Look at verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. It's archaic. The Bible? Are you serious? It's foolishness. Just like the crucifixion of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews we saw last time, and it's just flat silly to the Greeks. So God's Word is the same. The standard of God's Word. The standard of marriage. The standard of sexuality. All those things are, are foolishness to the natural man. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's not able to understand them because they are not spiritually discerned. That person doesn't have the Spirit in them. Are we to show that? Absolutely. We're to demonstrate that power in our lives. But the natural man doesn't have that. Blaise Pascal. If you've ever heard of Blaise Pascal, I'm sure you have. 16, lived in the 1600s. A brilliant, by, by all human standards, one of the most brilliant uh, minds that ever lived. Uh, when he was like 16 years old, he had already uh, invented this machine that, that was a calculating machine. If you read most stuff, he's, uh, he's accredited to be one of the fathers of the, of the computer. Listen to what he says. He's a theologian, French mathematician, the whole bit. Listen to what he says. I love this. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find, what? Attractive. People don't invariably arrive at their beliefs, or they do, not on the basis of proof. I'm going to prove to you, God. I'm going to prove to you, Christ. I'm going to prove to you the Christian life. But people don't really arrive to their belief system on proof, but rather what they find attractive. And guys, when we're living in the, with the mind of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, that's attractive. The world wants to know more about that. When we try to be like the world, use the language of the world, fit into the world, they don't see anything different. But when we live by the power of the Spirit with the mind of Christ, they say, wow, something's going on there. I don't see that everywhere. Something's different. That's attractive. And God will use a powerful life to bring people to himself. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. And what, what does Paul mean there? He's saying this. Believers cannot be understood by non-believers. Our worldview is Christocentric. The world's view is anthrocentric. It is man-centered. The Christian worldview, Christocentric, worldview of the world, man-centered. And, and, and we are not, Paul's saying here, we're going to be judged by no one. Here's what he's saying. We are not to let the world tell us what's right and wrong. We are not to be judged by the standards of the world. 
We never have to back down by anyone in the world who says, oh, I don't agree with that, that's wrong, that's archaic. We don't have to do that. We don't have to be judged by anyone except by God and the standard of his word. Look at verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord to instruct him? Paul's saying, we have the mind of Christ. And who has understood the mind of God so that we tell him what to do? Now Paul gets to his main point, right? Here we, here we are back to it. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. All right, as we wrap up, let's just think about that. What does that mean? Sometimes when I, when I read that, it's like, man, I can't even, it's overwhelming, right? Can't even grasp it. We have the mind of Christ. Paul's not saying we can get the mind of Christ or if we work hard enough, we can finally achieve the mind of Christ. He's saying to these believers, by the way, he's saying to believers who are not living like they should, right? In Corinth, you, even in your sin, even in your division, believers, even in your sexual immorality, you're not living like it, but I got to tell you, you have the mind of Christ. So let's think about that. What, what, does, that, what does that look like? It's, it's so profound, and yet, so just rubber meets the road practical. We, we could do a whole series on this. Let me just give you three things about the mind of Christ. Number one is this. Remember when the Jewish uh, leaders went to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, of all the laws in the Old Testament, what is the most important? What were they really asking Jesus? What's in your mind? What are you thinking? Of all the laws, what do you think is the most important? And Jesus said, he just took the Ten Commandments and just boiled them down into two. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment greater than these. So they asked Jesus what he was thinking. He told them. And so we would say, well, the mind of Christ is loving God with all we got. And then loving others as ourself. Man, that is as basic as that is. We just flip it off, don't we? Love God, love others. That is radical. That is the demonstration of the Spirit in our life because I don't naturally love others. I don't even naturally like others. That's just a demonstration of the Spirit's work. So when we have the mind of Christ, we're saying, God, I love you more than anything else on this earth. I'm going to demonstrate that I love you more than anything else on this earth with all my mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I'm going to love others as myself. Secondly, if we have the mind of Christ, we are going to grasp and grow in God's revealed truth. We're going to grasp God's revealed truth to us, his love letter, and we're going to grow in it. John, write down John 15, 15 on this one. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Check this out. For all, Jesus is telling this to us. 
For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that cool? Jesus says, I'm not holding anything back. Everything I learned from the Father, I am made known to you, and I've recorded it here in black and white in my word so you can read it, and the Spirit who lives within you, who inspired it, can help you understand it and then live it out. Grasp and grow in God's word. Number three, consider others before yourself. Consider others before yourself. There I would jot down Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look each of you, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in what? Who? Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ, humility. He considered others before himself. Pretty basic stuff, isn't it? Love God and others. Grasp God's word and live a life that doesn't look out of your own interests but the interests of others. That, guys, is the mind of Christ. That is radical stuff. And that can only be done by the Spirit working in our life. So, you come up with your own application to this. What's this going to look like in your life? Let me just give you a few. One, some practical stuff. Being committed to reading God's Word daily. Are you committed to that? Are you truly committed to it? If you're not committed to it and you don't have a plan, it ain't going to happen. Are you committed to reading God's Word? Secondly, are you committed to growing spiritually? And that means you're with other believers and you're growing together. Iron sharpens iron. High school students, junior high students, elementary students, how about sitting at lunch with the person who is sitting alone? Maybe at work. We like to hang out with our own group, don't we? What about that person sitting alone? How about staying sexually pure in a promiscuous world with our body and with our eyes? How about using social media to build others up instead of all the tearing down and bullying that goes on, even from the top of our government? It's just not right, is it? How about not always having to have our own way in our marriage? How about this one, blended families? How about being a godly stepmom or a godly stepdad? Did a funeral here, a memorial service here on um, Thursday, and a guy, uh, Gary Smith, uh, 
passed away. He went to our church, and, and uh, his two stepsons spoke at his service and very emotionally said, he was like a dad to us, but he never, he never interfered with our dad in our life. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool, isn't it? And all the stuff going on in blended, all the tension in blended families. How about being a godly stepmom or stepdad? How about committed to be a godly parent, not just giving your kids everything they want, but everything they need, and actually being the parent? Helping someone go through tough times, going on a mission trip to share the gospel, or maybe just across the street with the plate of cookies to someone going through a challenging time. One thing I know Jesus did is to serve, and we thank so many of you who serve in so many different ways. We couldn't even be here this morning unless hundreds of people were involved in service at our church, and we thank you for that. And there are a lot of opportunities. Out on the starting point wall, there's this student serving opportunities. If you're a student, fifth grade and up, we've got a book full of opportunities for you. We want you serving all over this church. We'll even buy you a t-shirt, okay? We'll give you a free iPhone. Just kidding, we won't do that. We want you to serve. We love you to serve. You're part of the body. All kinds of opportunities. Here's another brochure, ministry list. Here are opportunities for you to serve. Find a place. Find a place to serve. The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Think about it. Just think about that. We have the mind of Christ. So I was reading this week about uh, Christians in Iran. And uh, Christians in Iran, by the way, it's said that there are a lot of people coming to Christ in Iran because they've seen for years Islam's not working. Remember, people go to what they find what? Attractive. But they know they're going to be persecuted. So Christians in Iran, think about this. One of the, I'll just read part of this blog. One of the Iranian Christians that I've interviewed said that in, in, their, in his house group, they role play and practice being arrested and interrogated because they know that day is going to come. So they literally practice preparing for it. Think about that. And we get all hung up when the music's too loud. Same blog said, persecuted Christians don't say, pray that they'll let me go or pray that this will stop. Instead, their prayer request is, Lord, help me be faithful in spite of the persecution, in spite of the suffering. That is what? Power demonstrated by the Spirit. And that is attractive. And that's not like the world. When we have the mind of Christ, things change. And the early church had the mind of Christ, 
even in persecution, even in a terrible secular society, church grew. So we have to ask our question. We have to deal with it, right? Why is it declining today? And we have more freedom than ever before. We have the mind of Christ. Father, I pray that you drive that home. Help us not just to know that, but help us to live it. To demonstrate to a watching world, to be attractive in our living out day by day, moment by moment, in the frustrating times, in the discouraging times, in the great times, remind us we have the mind of Christ, his thinking, his character, his attitude, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this week, help us to be that person who demonstrates the Spirit's power in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.